we're continuing in Revelation. Lyle was, was not finished, and uh, he told me I could do that if I wanted to, or I could do something else, and I figured we'll just go ahead and, and, and wait on through that. Uh, he's been teaching this from a perspective of, of the theological meaning of Revelation in each one of the chapters as opposed to talking so much about the different interpretations or the different views uh, as we're going through it. And, and I like the approach. I've studied it both ways. I do think Revelation is written for all people of all ages. And, and by that I mean there was a message for, in all 22 chapters for the people of that day. But I also think there's a message in all 22 chapters for people of all times. Because if you look at Revelation, basically what it does, it chronicles God's victory in an evil world. If you look at what happens, I mean, he, it's his creation. It's, it's gone under because of evil, and, and we see him coming back. We see him victorious, and all of his children victorious with him. So I think that's the message for the ages there, and it's the message of encouragement for us when, when we study through this book. And uh, there's one fact we know for sure out of Revelation, that God wins, and his children win with him. And that's the thing we can always look at when we're studying through this book, that, uh, that, that we're going to be victorious with him, because at a, at, a, at a point in time, he is going to set things straight in this world. So it's kind of the perspective we're taking as, as we look through this. And so tonight we're going to be, I think in chapter 19, he got through the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't think he got through the last part of it, the rider on the white horse. And I guess I'm dumb enough to, to wade into that and see if we can make some sense out of it. But let's just think for a few minutes about, about approaching this passage tonight. If we think about 100 years ago in America, what was the culture like? What, just think from a historical perspective. What was going on? What kind of environment was going on at that time? No computers, but in, but the Industrial Revolution, I mean, we were making great strides. Teddy Roosevelt, social reform, scientific discovery. It looked like man was just on the verge of a utopia. We were finally rising out of the ashes of the Civil War. Things were happening, and, and, it, and it, was just a, it was just a time when you had a lot of your people building mass fortunes and things taking place. It was almost like man is about to arrive. And then what happened over the last hundred years? Two major wars, a million little wars, terrorism, all these things that are going on. It was almost naive to think that man could create an environment that, that would satisfy us enough for God not to judge that and, and, and what's going on in our lives. So, uh, you know, we're wading through that. And, and don't get me wrong, we're living in a world that's, that's chaotic now. We pray for a better world. We pray for revival. We pray for things to be good. I mean, uh, we live like we're supposed to live like Jesus, you know, in the world today and try to make it better. But ultimately, what's the only thing that's ever going to make this world like it ought to be again? Return of Christ. Double-edged sword. What's the only way he's going to return? It gets a whole lot worse. So we're caught in this trap as believers. We want it to be better. We want things, you know, good. And yet we realize the only way it's ever going to be totally where it needs to be is for the Lord to come back and set things straight. And in the process of that, it's got to get much worse. And we're going to see in Revelation tonight he has gotten to that point. 
And we realize that, that you know, there's a lot of people going to come under judgment. For the believer, we should, we should pray every day for, the, for God to be merciful and extend that time that more may come into the kingdom and not be lost. And uh, so that's kind of some of the things we deal with. But, but that's the only way he can come back and the only way we can reach that perfection that we need. Now, in the early parts of Revelation, particularly in the last few verses, we talked about Babylon. The world reaches in the tribulation and reaches an ultimate. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's an awesome set, uh, civilization. But then Babylon falls, the great Babylon. It talks about the culture of the world. And we just look around us today at progress and, and world traveling. It's it just how much further can we go and how much further can we get. And yet at a point in time, all of that's going to collapse. And, uh, and God is going to set all that straight again. And so... And that's what we see, and that's what we're, we're into now. now. Now, in 19, 1 through 10, Lyle talked about the marriage supper of the Lamb. When God, all this is coming into a culmination, and uh, there's not too many things left to interpret. I mean, we're down to Christ coming back in the final stages of everything coming into, in, into view. But uh, in the marriage supper of the Lamb, his children are gathered with him in heaven to, heaven to celebrate. It's kind of ironic because they celebrate the falling of the world. And you would say it's, it's kind of hard to celebrate the destruction of man, but that's what's happening here because the judgment has finally come. And so tonight we're going to be dealing in, in the second part of chapter 19, uh, starting with, with verse 11. And we're going to see the dawn of the coming of Christ into this situation and, and, and the great battle that's coming, because it's talked about this all through Scripture. Now, I want to back up just a minute and, and read, go back to chapter 1 first in Revelation, and about verse 12. And, you know, it starts out in John, and John has heard a voice. He's on Patmos, he's exiled, and a voice is coming and, and, and talking to him. And he said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and around the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Remember that. His feet were like bronze growing in a furnace, and his, fo his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. Keep, keep that in your thought process. His face was like the shining of the sun and its brilliance, and when I saw him I fell at his feet as though, as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. And so we're going to see, we understand, that's, we, we know that was he was talking to God. And now we're going to see that take place in this passage. And let me read, I'm going to read the rest of the verses in 19, and then we're going to come back and work through them a little bit at a time. Starting in verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself, and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword, which, which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. 
Now you find that in chapter 12, verse 5 as well. You remember when the, the, the child was born and the devil was trying to kill him? He said, a, a son is born that will rule with an iron scepter. So you see all this stuff in Revelation tying in now to, to what we're doing. He treads around winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miracles on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Kind of tough right after after you've eaten <laughs> to read through that but but this is this is the final this is Armageddon this is where God is coming in into place and setting all these things right as we look back through this now let's let's kind of walk through these verses a little bit and he in verse 11 we see something he said I saw heaven standing open where's the only other time in revelation he saw heaven standing open anybody remember no in in revelation yes ma'am it's the transition. It's chapter four, verse one. He said, "You know, and a lot of people put the rapture there." He said, "I looked, but what he saw in, in chapter four, verse one, was God in heaven. He went up and saw God in heaven. So what's he seeing now in, in, in here? What's happening now is he's seeing God come to earth. Before he went to heaven to see what was going on. Now, God, Christ is coming here. He's about to reclaim the earth. So he said, "I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse." And so white is synonymous with victory in that culture, with the Roman culture. So it would be white because it leaves no... Remember, John is writing out of experience. So he knows that anybody who reads this is going to understand he's on a white horse. He's a conqueror. He's a king. He's victorious. And, and that's, that's the purpose of that and putting that in there. He's right. He's called faithful and true who judges. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. We saw that a minute ago. The, really, the... The significance there is that he sees all. Nothing escapes his, his vision. Nothing gets by him. Nothing goes undone. Nothing goes unjudged. Nothing, nothing goes incomplete. He's, he's capable of seeing all and doing all when he looks at that. On his head are many crowns. And, and the synonymous thing with that was many crowns meant he's ruler of all nations. So you see the symbolism building here. To He's establishing... John is establishing this vision that this is Christ because he rules all nations, he sees all, he does all, he's a conqueror, he's victorious. And uh, he said he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And the commentator said a smart thing. He said there's no use of writing one sentence on that because if he only knows, there's no use of, of going any further. I found this little thing is pretty interesting. It talks about the five or six names that Jesus is called in that passage. He said faithful and true means he was successful at completing his first mission and his first coming. That's Calvary, and he was. The Word of God means he's an awesome power as God's agent, both in creating and judging. King of kings means he has superiority over all rulers. Lord of lords, sovereignty over the whole universe, and natural and supernatural. And the secret name, the inability of humans to ever exhaust understanding of him. 
In other words, there's things about him we'll never know this side of heaven. And I thought that was pretty interesting the way that, that the way that the writer put that. But uh, and, you know, and he's he's dressed in a white robe dipped in blood, and that was an interesting thing as well because he hadn't fought a battle here yet. He just come down and he's got blood on him, and some think it might be uh, symbolic of the cross, but most commentators said it's symbolic of the battles he's already fought for us through time. That, you know, the only way Satan didn't just destroy this world is God's kept him in check. And God has fought those battles over the years. And it's the only reason that we have hope and a chance that he's fought those battles over the years. And and so you you get this picture of him coming on a white horse, coming to earth, because as we're going to see in just a minute, the world is gathering against Israel. And he's coming to meet that challenge. And he said, The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And that's his children. Now, there's some debate about whether angels are involved in that as well or just what saints there were or all saints. But from, from the Scripture, everything in heaven, every saint in heaven is with him, dressed in white on a white horse as well. But as we know from studying this passage, we don't have to do any fighting if we're already there as he's coming back. And so so the stage is set for that. And he's on his way back and, and, and coming into to, uh, the, to this arena to, to, to put the final battle on this, to, to solve this for, forever and ever. And so he said, and then in verse 17... It kind of goes on. He said, I saw an angel standing in the sun who, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free, free, free and slave, small and great. What did he encompass? What did he basically say in that passage when he used all that general description of people? Look at what he said again. He said, kings, generals, mighty men, horses, riders, the flesh of all people, free, slaves, small and great. What's the one determining factor here of whether or not you survive or not? Jesus. You either know him or you don't. When it gets to here, nothing else matters. Now, this is the same Jesus that in this intolerant world we live in, we're not supposed to tell people. He's like John 14, 6. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by him. And he says that himself, and yet that's intolerant. Yet, when you get here, that's the only ticket there is. You either know him or you don't know him. And if you know him, you're going to be victorious with him. And if you don't know him, it's going to be the opposite. And it's not, you know, it's not going to be a, a happy time for anyone. And so all this power and authority now is coming to earth to set things right when we look at this. And then uh, one of the interesting things here, when he talked about it, he said that uh, he was calling the birds... Uh, in midair to come, and because of of the destruction that was going to be there, one of the interesting things about it is every year millions and millions of birds fly from Europe to Africa, and guess where the migration highway is? Right over the top of Israel. Now I'm not making a point out of that, but isn't it interesting that even in nature God could probably fix something where when He needs millions of birds they'll be there. And if you take this literal. And I kind of do. I think we're in part of Revelation where it's not so symbolic. You, I think this battle is going to take place. Some will argue that it's more symbolic. Some will argue that obviously everybody in the world is not going to be at that battle at the time. But if everybody in the world don't know Jesus, I kind of figure that's going to be the end of the deal because he does it by the word of his mouth, and we'll see in just a minute. 
But just a lot of interesting things taking place as we look down through this. And he said, I come together for the great supper so that you may eat the flesh. And he talks about it again, and it's all lost people. He said, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. And so, so they're gathered out here now. And of course, this is what we know as the Battle of Armageddon. This is what we know as, as out on the plain of Megiddo. They're going to gather around and finally put an end to this problem with, with Christianity, with God's people. And it's interesting, but everything is centered on Israel right there where it is. I mean, there's no way around that. It's everything that, uh, that's taking place in, in these times. And when this time comes, the judgment is going to be, there's no more second chances. There's no more revivals. There's no more mission trips. There's no more nights to think about it. When, when that time comes and that battle is out there and when Jesus finally speaks that word, which he will in a minute, that's going to be the end of the age and the end of destruction on that. And so if someone, everyone there that doesn't know Christ is about to die is basically what's going on. They're, they're about to be judged for the life they've lived. Now, the interesting thing about it is, when we look at this, let's look on down through, uh, let me see, verse 19. Sit out, saw the beast and the kings gathered together to make war against the rider and the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. Kind of tells you what the outcome is going to be right there. I mean, before the battle ever starts, these these two are captured, and he said, "Well, these signs." And he's talking about they had deceived many people. The two were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So that's pretty much a done deal with those guys right there. Said the rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So there really wasn't much of a war. I mean, if you read it that way. Now some argue that that's not literal, that that's a figurative uh, part there. But just looking back through, through text, let me, let me read you a couple of, of passages that I think speak to this. And I think it's kind of interesting. One of them is in Zephaniah chapter 1, about six or eight verses, starting in verse 14. And it talks about the great day of the Lord. So this is prophetic, but it's, it's falling into place. And he said, the great day of the Lord is near and near and coming quickly. Zephaniah 1, starting in verse 14. The cry of the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there. There will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people, and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, their entrails like filth. Neither, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And in, his, in fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. He will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. And then over just a couple of pages, chapter 3, he said in chapter 3, uh, verse, last part of verse 8 in, in Zephaniah, I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. You see this picture of God. When it gets to this point, there is no mercy. He is not the God of love and kindness and mercy and grace. He is the God of judgment here. And it is fierce. It is complete. It's deadly. And it, it's, it's never ending until it's through. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the people. 
that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve with him shoulder to shoulder. And then over just a little bit, I want to read this passage as well. Zechariah, which is just over just a little bit, in chapter 14. Because we have, we have a tendency to read over that little war thing there and just go, well, he did it. But the, the complexity and, and, and the devastation in this thing, you really get a more a picture of it when you look back at these prophetic words. Uh, chapter 14, starting in, I think, verse 3 will be fine. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and on the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by the mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And that's the same picture as he come out of heaven with heaven's army with him. On that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daylight or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes there will be light. On that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. The whole land from Geba to Ribion, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the Benjamin Gate to the side of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the Tower of Hamel to the royal winepress. It will be inhabited, never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague which the Lord will strike on all the nations that fought against Israel. Now just kind of listen to what he says here. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another, and they will attack each other. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and all the animals in that camp. Now, part of that was going into Canaan. But also, that's very symbolic. When God comes back, it's complete. I mean, when you think about animals and everything and what he's going to do, and, and, and you just read through that language there, the, the impact that, that that puts on that and, uh, and, and what it will look like when we get to that point in time. And so, and one of the other things he talks about here, too, is, is when he throws these two into the, into the lake of burning fire. That's also, we've, that's also back in Revelation, and we see that. But um, when, when we're looking at chapter 19, there's a couple things that, that stand out here when we, when we look at this passage. There, there's, two, there's two banquets in here. The marriage supper of the Lamb, and then what's the other one? It's the great feast of the birds. Now here's here here's the if, now if you'll allow me a little bit of theological leeway here we're all not going to be at that last time there but think about it this way you're either one of two things you're the eater or the eaten you're one of the two because the only thing that matters is Jesus you're either going to be at the banquet or you're going to be the banquet and there's no other there's no other I mean seriously now you think about it it's a good way to remember it when you want to cut this down to to what it's really all about is whether or not someone knows Christ. That's all that matters. Are you one of his children or are you not? And we're going to see next week when we get into the, the, the judgments and things like that, 
that, uh, that you know, there's not going to be any mistakes there. I mean, God's going to determine who is and who isn't, and, and, and that's the way it's going to be. One of the other things, here's another commentator said about the battle I thought was pretty good and kind of just trying to wrap up on this part of it. And what I'm going to do through this study, these short snippets like this, I can move over in to next week's lesson and take a little more time, but then I'm getting into a whole different thing like the millennium, so I'm going to kind of take it in snippets as we go through these last two chapters and try to just talk about that particular subject that night without getting too far out in the left field with it. And one of the other, oh yeah, <laughs> you are. You're either going to be the banquet or you're going to go to the banquet, one of the two. So, <laughs> But you know, it, it's, it's really our call in this world, though. I mean, it really is. When you boil it all down, despite mankind, all our greatness, all our discoveries, everything you have, when it gets to right here, it's do you know him or do you not know him? That's all that matters. That's all, that's all we have to take with us. And the other thing is, if we know him, we've got a command, we've got a call, we've got a responsibility to try to pass that along to others. God is merciful only that, you know, more may come in. And, uh, and, and that's, that's our challenge, to be salt and light in a world that we know there's no hope for, really. In the end, there's no hope for this world. We know where it's going. Revelation tells us where it's going. It's going to be judged. How long that will be, we don't know. Can we pray for it to be great? For 500 more years, yes, we can. Can there be revival? Yes, there can. As long as there's a God in heaven, there can be revival and great things can happen. When will that be? I don't know. And, and we don't know. But, uh, but, but time is closing out. And here's the other thing about it. I've always said about Revelation. I love to debate it. I've got about 20 resources on Revelation. I've got four or five sermon series with some of the greatest preachers, past and present. And nobody knows for sure what all this means except God. And he had a plan before it started. It's going to take place exactly like he said, when he said. And everybody that knows him is going to share it with him, glory with him. And that's all really we need to worry about. And, and when I think about that, I think when we get to heaven, and if you just start reading through, through here and reading about the glory of God and the glory of heaven and the glory of worship, I think once we get there, what, what view somebody held is probably going to be the furthest thing from our minds. You know, it, it don't matter, you know. I really think the only way it can be just is when we get there someday and God can say, none of you had it all right about anything in Scripture because, you know, we all got to be wrong somewhere. Just keep it even killed. But, but, but the glory of heaven is going to let all this pass. But look, listen to what this writer says about the battle. I think this is pretty good. He said, then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There'll be just a word spoken from him who sets astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell back, silent. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the scene of a poor man's soul and instantly they fled. Now he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous loudmouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet and the miracle working windbag from the pit is punctured and still. The pair of them are bundled up and hurled headlong into the everlasting flames. Another word, and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all, they fall. And the vultures descend and cover the scene. That's about as complete as you can get it. You know, that's all it's going to take for Jesus to conquer this world. When it gets to a point in time someday when they come against Israel, that's all it's going to take. 
and, and, and if we're already gone on to heaven, we're going to be in that army, stand there beside him, but all we have to do is just ride down and watch. We don't even have to do anything. And, and you know, when you read those passages in those prophets now, there's probably going to be a lot more going on in this battle than you see here from destruction and devastation. But it's not because Jesus is out there having to fight it. He fought it with a word. And, and, you know, if you look back in the Old Testament, how many times did God confuse the enemy to where they killed each other? So, but you try to think about the mass destruction of this, uh, and they talk about the millions of people that will be gathered here to fight this war in the end. So when we're looking at that, it's, it's come to this combination. It's, uh, Babylon has fallen, the world has come, the tribulations, all these things have gone through. This is towards the end of tribulation if you're a pre-tribber, and I kind of am. I think it's rapture trip. You know, it's a, we're not going to get too deep into that yet. Cause, but uh, but it's, it's, at, it's at the point now to where after the time, you know, God is through judging, he's told Jesus, okay, it's time to set this straight. It's time to go take back what was yours from the beginning. And what we've allowed to happen and what we've allowed to have mercy on, it's time to go get it. And it's time to judge all those that, that don't love you. It's time to judge all those that have fought against us. And, and that's what's happening here. And it's done without mercy. It's done without one last altar call. He comes down, he speaks the word, and it's over. It's over that quick. And so as, as we look through this passage and see it taking place, I mean, just... To, to try and watch the last few few chapters here and just how complete and just how quickly this happens. And so the battle is won. The battle is, is complete. And, and next week we're going to be looking at the rolling in. Like I said, we're through just a little early than I would like to be, but I don't want to dig into we're going to get over into the thousand-year millennium, and that takes a whole other 30 minutes to even get the course set for and we're going to kind of look at three views of that just a little bit, not because they're critically important in one way, but just how we view that millennium taking place. But it's, the millennium is talked about six times in the first six or seven verses of that passage. So it, it's not something we can ignore. There's something to that uh, thousand years there, be it symbolic, be it literal, be it whatever. And we're, going, we're kind of going to discuss that a little bit. As, as we're closing into these final days on earth. And, um, and we're going to, I think as we, we saw here, we'll see next week the, the beast and the false prophets in there, the old dragon's going in the pit, and he's going in for a thousand years then to be released again. That's always troubling me. I, I'll just tell you, I'm not sure about that. So there's a lot of stuff in this passage. Uh, tell you what, let me just read the first six, eight verses, kind of give us something to think about next week as we're going to dig into this. And... Uh, he said, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized that dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him in the abyss and locked him and sealed it over to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And that's, I'm, I'm, I've chased that one for a long time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or the image and received his mark. That was the martyrs during the time of the tribulation. Kind of just give you a heads up on that. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This was the first resurrection. We'll stop right there because I'm confused just reading it. But seriously, we'll dig into that. But also we're going to talk about the dead are judged here. 
next week. So we're, we're getting into a bunch of stuff in this little short chapter and, uh, and try to walk through it and just, and, and just keep in mind we're following God closing out the age of this world is, is what we're doing. And he's completed that battle at Armageddon. He's, and, and Israel there is protected now. Or the remnant of Israel, however you view that from, from, uh, from interpretation. But it's hard to get around the fact that God's protecting somebody there and, and for a purpose and a reason and, and setting up his kingdom. And then we'll talk in depth about the thousand year. The, uh, we'll look at three millennial positions, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, and amillennialism. And kind of what they mean and, and where we fall in there in that category and how we believe that affects what we, what we believe as, as, as believers here. But again, the main thing is we're looking constantly through this thing. If we are a child of God and the battle's taking place right outside, if we're right in the middle of it, we don't have to worry. It really don't. And really that ought to fuel our lives to think. I think one of the things we take away from Revelation as we studied and, and we just look at the glory of God and his love for us and what he does, it ought to empower us every day to look and say, it doesn't matter how bad my circumstances are. Not that I like them. It doesn't matter because I know somewhere down the road there's victory. One day, whenever it is, at God's timing, and that's his business, we're going to be on the winning side. And there's no other guarantees in life. God, God's never told us this life is going to be easy and rosy and cakewalk. We're all going to be pretty rich and famous. And that He's never has. He just says, I'll never leave you forsake you. And when you read through Revelation, that army that come back, that was the saints in heaven. We're on that side. And that's where I want to be. I just want to be far enough back to see what happens and not even get close to some of this. So. But uh, anyway, hope that helps a little bit. Any, any thoughts, any questions before we go for tonight on that part of it? Either going to be at the banquet or you're going to be the banquet. There's just two choices. But uh, uh, most of you'd be surprised what will eat it. Crows. Hey, when God gets through with anything, will do it. But, well, vulture, yeah, I know. They are ugly. But, hey, if you did, you did. You know. But it is a gruesome scene. If you just if you read it and you read what the most prophetic message, I mean, if he, just say if there's 500,000 people on that plane and he kills them all, what is that going to look like? Because the plane right there where that battle is, I wasn't in Patton and said it was the greatest battlefield he'd ever seen. It's it's a perfect battleground. So and that's where they gather. And uh and it, you know what's interesting though, you would think, of course this is after the tribulation all, you would think that they wouldn't all have to gather there to kill Israel. You'd think they might still have enough equipment left and maybe they don't. But it maybe it must be like old times where they have to gather man on man and they pull the nations there. Because if you notice in that first verse as I read it said to drive the river Euphrates up for the kings from the east so they could come in. I mean, God even goes out and drives the rivers up so they can come on in. Come on, boys, you know. And, and he, he's ahead of everything. He knows, he knows they're coming. And at the right time, that's when he'll come. And that's when John said, I looked up and I saw him. And the difference is now John saw him there then, and now he sees him here. And he's here with us, and, and, and that's, that's the critical thing for us. That's the glory thing for us. Amen? Anything else? Yes? Uh-huh. Everybody, and that's a personal decision for everybody. We can witness, but they have to make the choice. But ultimately, God will have no mercy on any that doesn't, doesn't accept it.